0: Hello and welcome to the Jazz Podcast. It is episode 169, and today we're talking to Steve Bramson, an incredible composer who has turned from previously being a jazz pianist. So we're going to talk to Steve. We're going to have a listen, first of all, to his piece Penelope. This is from the score for the movie Last Call, this is for small string orchestra with harp and piano featuring a solo violin. This won the Castel de Peralda Award for best score at the 2021 BCN Film Festival Awards in Barcelona. Steve Bramson welcome to the jazz podcast how are you doing I'm doing great thanks for having me Steve this is a huge honor because I love your music and I'm fascinated by film score and you have a history as a jazz pianist long ago and I want to understand how these things all intermingle because it's fascinating
1: all right I'll do my best to answer your questions so here we go
0: first of all would you be able to tell our lovely listeners a little bit about yourself
1: well sure I mean I'm uh, uh as you stated my career has mostly been film and television composing I'm based in Los Angeles but I'm from New York I grew up outside of another great city New York um I'm from a musical family my, my mother was an operatic soprano my father a clarinetist Juilliard graduate, but made his life in the world of um, business at a music school and a music studio that served the community for over 50 years. Where I grew up, so I was surrounded by music. My sister is also a musician. Um, so um, what more specifically would you like to know?
0: What did your parents play or your dad? He ran a music school.
1: Well, he was a clarinetist. And he, he did perform. He led the high school band for a brief time till his business really took off. He played clarinet in the local chamber orchestra. My mother, as I said, was an operatic soprano. So she performed in and around New York City quite a lot, uh, mostly art songs. Not, not so much opera, but but some. Also taught at home. It was very common me for me to come home from school and find her in the living room doing uh, warm-ups with her, her, uh, her students. We had a very small home. It was hard to get any distance. <laughs> no so, escape. That. So I'm sort of steeped and percolating in percolating and yeah. that kind of music. Yeah. My father, he was a you know alto player, played in the had a big band and uh, served uh, in the band in the air force in the in the army uh, at the end of the world uh, Second World War. Um, I, so I heard lots of big band music on the radio and uh, you know at home you know as a young man, yeah.
0: Wow. That's really interesting. That, yeah, uh, what a great like history heritage to have for your, for yourself. Yeah. So how much did you ever go and see your parents like performing? Was it always Absolutely. something you wanted to do?
1: Well, I did go see them performing. Mostly we were obligated to. As young <laughs> well, I mean, in a sense we were young children, we were, we tagged along wherever they told us to go. So yeah, yeah I went many, many times to hear them. Um, and I actually also remember going into the city and and going to the famous uh, Young People's Concert Leonard Bernstein gave back in the in the six early sixties. Oh, wow, when I was growing up so it was a great you know it was a great environment to to grow up in in that sense. Um, yes, we did go to performances. I I did not um, I came about music in kind of a I don't know if it's an odd way really, but it was it was not a direct way. Let's just say I was around it. And was a young man, I was, particularly because my father had a music school, I was inserted into the traditional piano lessons when I was very young, traditional, and I didn't really take to it very much. I wasn't particularly interested in it, and I kind of floundered. It wasn't until I was um, about eight years old, my father took me to a band concert. Um, they were playing Lewis, Lewis Anderson's uh, Bugler's Holiday, features I think, four or five trumpets from the band. And I was so excited. And I decided I wanted to play trumpet. So I played trumpet for about four years. I got to be pretty good till I was uh, first trumpet in the high school band. But around um, 13, I became interested in jazz and I'd become a little bit um, less enamored with the trumpet for whatever reason. I don't even really recall why. And I started playing piano. But another thing that happened at that time, I mentioned my father's music school, he had hired a young man who was a jazz. Pianist and a composer, and I started taking lessons with him, and he really opened up my eyes and opened up my ears. And that was a very formative um, experience to to start with. And a guy named Mitch Farber, who I still count as a very important part of my musical life. Um, and so I abandoned trumpet, stuck with the piano. Uh, right around the time I quit the trumpet, the band in high school, uh, the director started a jazz band, not you know a big band. I really wanted to play piano in the band, but the rule was you could not play in the jazz band unless you played in the concert band, and there's no piano in a concert band, so at least not in our band. So he made a deal with me and said, if you will play mallets, because I could read a keyboard, you can play piano in the jazz band. So I did, and I, you know, I also took up some rudimentary snare drum and cymbals and stuff like that I played. But, um, so I played in the jazz band there for you know, the last few years of my life uh, in high school. And then um, around the same time, I took up with some friends. We formed a quartet together, wrote our own tunes, started playing around the area. So that was sort of a a quick run through of my youth before college, at least.
0: So what did you study at college?
1: Well, I went to college as an undeclared major. um, And I think in my sophomore year, I decided to declare music. I took a lot of the basic classes, music history theory, some early composition classes, but I did not at the time see a way forward for me in music, even though it was important in my life. I was always, you know, involved in, you know, spending time in the music department. I was playing in the in the big band. I was sharing the chair. Our band went to Montreux and played with Clark Terry at the Montreux Festival. I was very involved in it, but I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't see a way forward. I didn't know what kind of life that would mean. So I switched my major to economics, which was something I was interested in. And so I, I, I ended up graduating with a degree in economics.
0: Wow. That's but, re- really interesting that, that you've uh, had these experiences and, and kind of been aware of like Montreux and Clark Terry. That's amazing that,
1: yeah. that that those
0: like opportunities, how did you come back oh, to music then?
1: Well, here's the thing, Rob. Um, This is interesting, you know, because I've been thinking about your podcast and and the great guests you had. I don't think of myself as a performer, even though I played piano. I never I never really uh, imagined a life as a performer. I didn't for for a variety of reasons. That could be why I was sort of lost at the time. I didn't think, well, I'm not I know I'm not going to have a career as a performer. So what am I going to do by going to music? I didn't really know what that would mean for me. Now. What happened was um, my teacher, Mitch, had been encouraging me. I'd, I'd gone to some summer, Jamie Abersold you know that name? Yeah, yeah,
0: we all know of him. He's a big. yeah. I don't think you know,
1: they do those anymore, but they used to have these summer week jazz camps.
0: He has all I the was, like, iconic play along CDs and yeah. books, you know? Yeah, yeah. Everyone people still have, uses
1: those. But he used to have a summer program. Kids right, okay, go, cool. Yeah, and you'd get, you know, Gary Burton was there one year, guys like that. So I, I did a couple of those, but Mitch really wanted me to go to this summer program at the Eastman School of Music here in, in, in the States, which is a very fine music conservatory. And I was just not confident. And I, I kind of, I don't know, and I put it up, put it up. But anyway, when I was graduating from college, I had a chart that I wrote for the band that was played on the um, final concert of my spring year there. And the guest soloist was Buddy DeFranco. Uh, you know the name Buddy Franco, yes. jazz clarinetist. Yeah, and he heard my chart and he found me and said, "I'd like to buy your chart so I can play it." Wow! Because he was doing clinics and traveling around, and this really gave me a kick in the rear. And I thought, well, the guy like Buddy DeFranco likes my writing. You know, maybe there is something here for me. So when I graduated with my economics degree, not in the wildest way of imagining myself going to business school I mean what am I going to do with this I decided to go to Eastman that summer after graduating and I went there and that was another mind-blowing experience because as wonderful as uh, the college I, I went to the University of New Hampshire they had a very fine band very good music program but Eastman was another level and when I went there I just was completely blown away by by that time it was pretty apparent to me that writing was my way forward. It's not, not playing. And the writing, the level of writing there and the level of playing of the writing there was so great. I just got so excited. And when I was there, I discovered they were promoting a master's program in jazz studies and contemporary music. Um, and so I, I read, well, what do I need to do to get into this? Cause I didn't qualify. I didn't have a music degree. So I took three years and I, you know, studied my piano, prepared my audition, my portfolio, wrote a bunch of compositions and did another summer there and I applied. And three years later, I got in and I did a master's at, at, at Eastman. At the time, the iconic educator, there was a man named Rayburn Wright. Any of your listeners who know about particularly writing, arranging, composing for jazz in the 80s, 90s education, he was at the top. People came from all over the world to study with him and another great teacher that was manny album was a terrific he was a, a barry sax player by the way but he he was a terrific a composer arranger and also the very fine pianist bill dobbins who was on faculty there um so it was an incredible environment and a lot of the guys that i i went to school with have gone on to be quite successful in my world as a film and tv composer but also in the jazz world um you know probably some names that you may know Um, but, um, that, that, and, and around the time I was at Eastman is when I kind of got more focused on this idea of being a film composer, you know, listening to all that music, but I wrote charts for the big band. You know, I played in one of the bands. There were too many fine pianists. I never made it to the A band or or the (laughs) B band, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, they played my charts.
0: Wow. So uh, when did you start really learning then about like film composition then at what point does that happen or did you study that or well I mean
1: the thing about film music really the only thing really you, you know you you learn you need to learn about scoring is how to synchronize your music right that the sort of technology behind it because that set aside it's just it's music you have to know how to write good music now of course to write music that works with picture you have to have a good sense of drama so I think some of that is like I had a very I don't think I identified it as such but I think I had a real um uh interest in storytelling in a way and so this was an outlet for me but obviously I mean this is why you can see in the world of successful composers and film the whole gamut from conservatory trained you know you know brilliant pianists to self-taught guitar players the thing they have in common though is that they know how to treat drama and they know how to they they know how to uh, you know use their musical skills to create the dramatic support that the movie needs so i think that um but but having said that i i discovered you know elmer bernstein i discovered eric Korngold. and of course i was growing up when john williams was coming up and he he completely broke the whole thing open i mean obviously Tradition right on the back, heels of, you know, Corn Gold and all of those, et cetera. But um, all those exciting movies that we all went to and when they came out with Star Wars and Jaws and hearing all this great score. So those were my first kind of entree and in inspirations to film music. But when I was there um, at Eastman, uh, one of the alumni is a, is a man named Lawrence Rosenthal, who is a, a really, uh, you know, highly regarded, wonderful, composer of film, two Oscar nominations, lots of great classic movie scores. And I met him when I was there. And ended up uh, studying with him or, or I was I did a work study with him, I came to California and worked with him. And I learned a great deal from him. But he's a master. So I was introduced to film music from a lot of different ways. It kind of all came together. And when I graduated Eastman, and I, re- I went back to my apartment in New York, I just really wanted to come out and give it a go. So I left and decided to come out and give it a try.
0: Wow, that's, in, that's amazing. How much technique did you ever feel like you studied or had with regards to composing?
1: Well, the thing about the program that I was in at Eastman, it was called Jazz, Jazz Studies in Contemporary Media. And it was, you know, Eastman is a conservatory like Juilliard, Curtis, you know, the the bulk of the students there are at that level where they're going to find a spot in major symphony orchestras or have careers at that level but Ray and Manny and and Bill designed this this program which was almost it was more like a uh, I wouldn't call it a trade school because that's too uh, raw but you know these were for guys who wanted to go out and work in the commercial world arranging for records playing jazz uh in the studio work musical theater film so we got our hands in all this stuff so in addition to I mean, I had some classical music training with Ludmilla Ulela, who uh, was a professor at the Manhattan School of Music. So I studied counterpoint, traditional composition. I also studied with Samuel Adler and um, Sid Hopkinson, composer at Eastman. But the majority of my time was spent writing arrangements for a big band, writing, you know, we get assignments to write a backing track for a song, compose a song, score a, score a, broad, you know, a, a song for a Broadway pit band score some films. There were, I, I did a, as a student at Eastman, I wrote some music for two student films, one at uh, state university of New York purchase, which is near my home. And also in Rochester, New York, where Eastman was the Rochester Institute of technology has a film school and there's sort of a back and forth between the schools. So I did some work for them. I got some training experience scoring there. Um, so, You know, and and also, I mean, I don't know what your educational background is. I'd be curious to know, actually. But when you go to these institutions like this, you're surrounded by so much talent that, yeah, the teacher's telling you this and you're learning that. But you learn so much from your peers, what they're into, what they're listening. How did you write that? How did you get that sound? You know, what are you doing there? You learn. So all of that kind of informed and helped create my toolbox, my toolkit. Yes,
0: I studied in in London at the Royal Academy um, on their jazz degree. And as you exactly as you describe, the tutors were amazing and I can't speak highly enough of them. But most of the stuff I learned was turning to the guy next to me or the girl in the in the college setting or like big bands. Let's say you're playing with someone and you're like, well, how do you do that? What are you up to? And you, you just like shared and traded ideas and and you kind of dragged each other along.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Rings are very true. Yeah. So um, what was your first big job then in the film film school world?
1: Well, I mean, I started working with Larry that Lawrence Rosenthal. Um, When I came out on that work study, he was scoring a miniseries and I didn't expect to work for him other than, you know, kind of follow him around, get him coffee stuff. But he had me orchestrate for him. Oh, wow. I got I mean, I didn't do the whole show, but he threw some work at me and I got to learn how to do that. And it was incredible because I remember going my first day going to what's now the Sony scoring stage was the famous MGM scoring stage where The Wizard of Oz was recorded and all these great movies. And here I am in this iconic space with the finest musicians anywhere, just completely it was heaven. You know, I mean, so I, my, I worked with him. And then for about four years or so, um, my main work was working with him. I did about, I don't know, a dozen or two projects. We came, I recorded in Abbey Road with him. Oh, well, wow. One of my early first jobs and first time to Europe was with him. Um, then, but while I was here, you know, I tried to connect with people and I had a, a colleague or two that I knew from Eastman that were starting to get a little work. They would throw an X if they got behind, throw a cue to me to help help them get their deadline. And I have met music supervisors and people in the industry and in the studios and my name got passed around. And eventually I got my own, um, uh, you know, shot at writing an episode of this, of this show, of that show. And um, I did that. I kind of cobbled together for several years um, an episode here and there. I'd be in rotation with maybe two or three other composers. So I'd do maybe half dozen of a season on a show. Um, and um, you know, the the first show that I got that was really just mine was Jag, which uh, you know, ran for about almost 10 years. And we had a sizable orchestra every week. And that I wrote over 200 episodes of that. So that would that was a you know big chunk of time, a chunk of work. They had an orchestra like on
0: On staff, is it? So as you're writing, they're sort of, how does that work?
1: No, no, Um, it's the freelance. The musicians are all freelance, but the contractor is often uh, not hired by, but they have a relationship with the studio. So if their studio is producing a show, they get their contractor to call the musicians together. And that's usually a consult with the composer. What do you need this week, Steve? Do you need need a full brass section or do you only need uh, woodwinds this week? Uh, you know, what, what are the players you need? And, uh, and then you, you know, you make a request, you know, I'd like Bob to play, uh, uh, concert master. I want Sue on, you know, first trumpet, whatever it is, you you put together your list uh, of musicians and he makes the call and they all come oh, together. Wow! You know? But generally speaking, you try to get the same people every week. So you get yeah. that, but there's so much work going on, particularly then, not so much now. That, you know, your favorites may be busy one week. So you have your, your backup player. Yeah. And uh, we had about, I, we averaged 30 to 35 players every week. Yeah.
0: Wow. So if you're sharing a show with other composers, do you have to be really mindful of what they're writing to try and find a linear path?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, first of all, there's the instrumentation, but there's also the style of the music uh listen you know want to listen to what he's trying to do there may even be some themes that you need to incorporate yeah absolutely
0: so jag is quite like it i'm going to describe it as a military show yes so how much of yourself do you feel you can fit in because you're writing to serve somebody else's work you can't just make a huge artistic expression of your own really in that sense
1: well i tried <laughs> <laughs> i did because if one reason is the only way to really keep sane because two hundred episodes—it's a lot. You got to yes. keep try to keep it interesting, and after a few years, you know, storylines kind of come back, and it's like, okay, we did this already. How do you make it new? Um, but I tried to, you know, look. I always, I always tried to do something creative and imaginative. And I, while there were um, there were character themes that that carried through the whole series, the whole, I tried to introduce a new kind of theme or overarching style to each episode, you know, if it was a more of a romantic story, it was more of a, if it took place in a more kind of exotic setting, I would get some ethnic instruments and, uh, you know, I would do that sort of thing. Um, But I mean, the military thing is a pretty straight up boilerplate thing to do. I mean, you know, uh, with the the brass and the, the, the kind of progressions that we know from, well, not, I was going to say Sousa marches, but there weren't really much, many marches. Um, but, you know, stylistically, um, harmonically, um, you, and, and of course, I had that great theme that Bruce Broughton wrote to use and to, I interpolated that so many ways, you know, direct, you know, kind of military march to a kind of romantic, to a mystery, to whatever. I had to do everything. So, I mean, it was fun, but challenging.
0: Yeah, I can imagine 200 episodes and trying to keep yourself fresh is a big challenge. It's one yeah, thing yeah. to write one episode. <laughs> How long would True. it take you to go through an episode of something like that and put the score well, together?
1: Pretty quick turnarounds. I probably write a score typically in about 5 days, you know. Sometimes 4, you know, I maybe 6, but you know, the you know, you have them every week and so if, you, if you, you you come off the run of one, you come home from the session. You know, you collapse. You typically don't get to work the next day. You give yourself a day off. So it's really about five days. And so you know, we were doing 20, 25 minutes of music. It's a lot. You know, writing four or five minutes a day. It's it's a crunch.
0: I can imagine. Um,
1: but I had, you know, uh, in the early days, I was using an orchestrator, so I could use some shorthand later on i did i just kind of did it more myself but um you have copyists to copy the parts and all that so mm-hmm. but still it's a lot now the difference is back then i wrote pencil and paper at the piano and i yeah. would leave my score out and the elves would come by pick it up take it off to the copyist and there that would be the next day yeah today you have to preview everything you have to write it on your home studio and do mock-ups submit it get it approved take notes make changes i didn't have to do that i would just show up and you know nine times out of ten they liked everything but now and then there was a glitch you know and i'd fix it there wow i prefer that way
0: yeah that does sound nice not having to be like someone like looking over your shoulder all the time
1: yeah i mean i don't mind getting notes but the problem is nowadays at least in my experience there there's so many hands in the pot because you got a director you got a studio you got a producer you know the network; they can all get notes, and they can conflict, and it's always, you know, I need it yesterday. It can; it's just a bit stressful. I didn't handle; I didn't handle that particularly well.
0: Was syncing ever a difficult thing? Because I imagine that would be a nightmare, personally. But I'm sure well, you don't agree with that because you do it for a living.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it's not. I mean, it, it's in one sense it's it, technical, but it's not really complicated. Um, because, you know, you, you, you basically have a map that you use that, you know, that you, that you, depending on the, you know, you imagine the music, you imagine the tempo and once you kind of have that, you can line it across your score paper and know that at, you know, with your stopwatch, you're just stopping the video and looking at the number on the screen of how many seconds have transpired till this event, you just kind of figure out, well, here it is. And then you, you write the music to get there. The biggest challenge for that sort of thing was when I was doing Tiny Tune Adventures because if you've ever seen any of these cartoons, these were modeled off the classic Warner Brothers cartoons that Carl Stalling wrote. And, you know, that that phrase Mickey Mousing, which is where the music fits the action like a glove. Mm -hmm. Runner runs, the music runs. If the runner, if the character jumps, the music jumps, you know. So you're constantly shifting gears. That that was challenging timing wise
0: but you you can do it i have a a series of of questions it does sound fun it sounds odd i have a series of questions here from a student of mine there's a a very bright creative young mind a girl called mariella who's 14 she introduced Uh, me to your music because she's a big fan of the scooby-doo a 14 year old knows my music yeah she told me she was like listen to this score man this zombie island this is brilliant um (laughs) And yes. and so that's why I, and then I emailed you to say, well, I bet Steve would love to have a chat with us and we can right. discuss it. She's written a few questions, fantastic right. questions. Can I, can I go through them? I just thought I'd clarify that these are hers, not mine. Cause they're smarter than my questions. Um, right. How much did you know about uh, zombie Island or any particular film before you start work on it? How much information, how much of a brief do you get before you start writing?
1: Well, I think well first of all I think that movie was the first one they did in this new reinvention of the Scooby Doo thing. I may be wrong but I believe it was. So I mean when I was a kid I think I saw the original Scooby Doo on TV, you know. So I kind of knew who the characters were. But in terms of the specific project, the and this is typical of just about anything. You see the video before you work. So I know the story. I'm not sure this is what you're asking me but
0: no, this is this is really interesting. Yeah. This is, I love it.
1: Yeah, you watch you watch the movie. It would be true of anything, uh, film, uh, indie film, uh, uh, a TV show. You see this in some cases. You'll get a script and you can read it before, but uh, to me, that doesn't do a whole lot uh, in terms of forming your creative choices because it's different when you see it than when you read it. So, but anyway, I would see the I would see the movie. I would watch it. Now, what happens is every um, movie tv show has what they call a spotting session and it means basically where you meet with the producer and the director and you watch the film together and you spot the film for music what are the spots the music go because you don't have music all the way through it comes in it goes out it comes in it goes out so you spot it and you choose the moments where the music needs to come in A lot of it is very obvious. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the composer will have a suggestion. What if we do this? Very often, the director knows exactly what they want. I need something here, but not really here. And you make a list, and you know this piece begins at this point and ends here, and you just work your way through the whole thing. So when I come home and I start working, I have a list of what I have to do. I know where I have to start, where I have to end, and you just kind of work your way through it.
0: Would you ever watch back a film like that once you've completely finished it and it's done and it's out, stick it on and see how it feels?
1: Sure. I mean, I've seen, I mean, everything I've done. Well, I mean, there may be certain episodes of Jag that I didn't watch. There were just so many of them. <laughs> uh, I didn't watch it every week, but certainly Scooby-Doo, uh, other movies I've done. Yeah, absolutely. I have copies of them.
0: Oh, fantastic.
1: Right there. That's
0: oh, brilliant. That's so lovely. Um yeah. Uh Mariello also specifically wanted to know if you like scooby doo as a franchise in general.
1: I loved that project. I didn't I didn't do any more after that. I think I w- I think I had an opportunity to do the next one, but I, I wasn't available for some reason. But I just did the one. Um I loved that was just so much fun. Yeah. I I think it's great. And it's funny because a lot of people, I mean, that's gotta be 20, 25 years old now. I don't
0: know when it came out. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah.
1: Maybe over. I don't know. But I still get a lot. You know, it's funny. People write me and say, yeah, I love that. I love that. I'm so disappointed that they never released the soundtrack because I'd love to be able to offer, like your student, you know, a chance to get a copy. But it doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. hadn't thought of that at all but um it is on, available on your website that people can go check it out there are some
1: bits it. yeah uh-huh.
0: yeah it's um i remember if the first time i like bought the soundtrack to like star wars episode one and i thought well the movie's two hours long i was really shocked when i realized the soundtrack was about 55 minutes and that thing of spotting that you say i just never occurred to me before why wasn't yeah. the soundtrack the length of the movie
1: right <laughs> Very An outrage
0: that would have been um there's another really interesting question that mariella sent me that says is there any films that you really would have liked to write the music for
1: oh it's just about all of them really i mean yeah i mean uh nothing i can't i mean i can't think of a specific title but yeah there are many wonderful movies i i would love to have had a chance to score and i'm grateful for the ones i've done few though they are but I love the the variety. I, you know, you mentioned earlier about the challenge of writing 200 episodes of a series with the same characters and many of the same plot lines. The wonderful thing about movies is everyone is different. You know, you have a different director with a different vision, different actors, different story. And um, I love doing that. And and I also, you know, when you're in a, a television show, you're kind of. I mean, you have these spotting sessions, but you're kind of. It kind of runs itself. You just kind of go home and do the work. You know what you're supposed to do. But with films, you have a very intimate relationship with the director and there's a lot. It's a real creative interaction that I really like. And uh so I would, you know, I, I would love to do any any movie, really. You know, so.
0: I've been listening back to your work and it's so broad and, and varied and both in its musical styles, but also the orchestrations are really varied. Do you decide on the orchestrations or are you often given the orchestrations and told to work with it?
1: No, it's pretty much always up to the composer. I mean, sometimes the project dictates it. I mean, there are certain things that you know. I mean, um, like I mean, Jag again is pretty straightforward. You know you're gonna have to have the brass and you know you're gonna have to percussion. You know you're gonna have to do certain things. And also JAG was kind of a in addition to being military, it was also an adventure show. So you need to have the resources to do sweeping themes and intimate moments and colorful expression, all of that, and, and, and use a vocabulary that was very, you know, middle of the road, adventure movie kind of music. That's what it was. But, um, you know, a movie I did called Don McKay has more of a, you know, I, I use a couple of guitars and dobro. Uh, solo, electric cello, some weird percussion and some samples and stuff. But that was a th- kind of a thriller, kind of a kind of a comedic black comic thriller. Um, and a lot of times those things, the the the, the sound and the instrumentation kind of uh, evolves. Like you start kind of with a little bit and then it, you kind of add to it, to eventually kind of flesh it out. Then I did a movie, um, well, it's called Last Call now, but it's based on the life of Dylan Thomas. And that has a a somewhat traditional score, but there's no brass in it. It's strings, piano, harp, solo, violin. So it's a little more intimate, a uh, little more classical.
0: Yeah, beautiful soundtrack. I listened to that earlier. Oh,
1: thank
0: you. And I noticed that won an award as well for best score at the BCN Film yeah. Festival.
1: Yes, that did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that's not on there, Rob, is a show I did called Fish Police, which you may have never heard of.
0: Sounds brilliant.
1: Well, the reason I'm mentioning it will be uh, in a second, you'll understand. But when The Simpsons came out, there was a mad dash all around town to come up with the next animated adult show. And one of the, and James Horner had been hired to write the theme for Fish Police, which was a noir kind of 40s noir-style detective, underwater. It's ridiculous when you <laughs> think about it. But all these, they were fish characters, but they could speak and they looked like human heads and everything like that. But the music was this noir 40s jazz. And I had a jazz band. Do you know the name Abe Most?
0: No, no, I don't. Well,
1: Google him when you have a chance. He was, I sadly think he passed away, a wonderful jazz clarinet player. And I, I had him on the date. I had a bunch of other guys I know, uh, oh, God, I'm forgetting his name now, the sax player here who played on everything, played on uh, John Williams' score that featured the alto sax in that Oh, movie. I know
0: who you mean. That that Catch me if you can. Dan Higgins. Yeah. yeah. You know
1: Dan Higgins' name? Yeah. Yeah. So he played, some other guys I know, and we had this big band plus strings, and I got to create this whole kind of 40s, noir thing and it was so much fun uh but i don't have music up on my website but uh
0: that sounds stunning
1: you know the variety i mean again this is kind of one of the cool things about doing what i do is every project is different and uh this kind of came out of left field well i had i'm trying to remember how this happened i think it was you know i worked i did work with james horner in a couple movies as an orchestrator That's not how I got Fish Police, though, even though he wrote the theme. I got that because a good friend of mine who I knew from Eastman was going to do it, but then got hired to do Young Indiana Jones and then recommended me to do Fish Police. And I think through a variety of channels, that's how that happened, I believe. Yeah.
0: Oh, wow. And and you've you've done some uh, Young Indiana Jones as well. I did
1: did one, yeah. And that was also a lot of fun. Yeah, and I did get get to meet George Lucas, and I was now it was really interesting because we were talking about spotting sessions. Here's a guy who knew exactly what he wanted. I mean, I was admittedly I wasn't about to just kind of run roughshod over him. Maybe it's George Lucas, you know. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Whatever you like, sir. You know. But I I was there, and I I had my ideas, and he was very polite. But he said, "No, no I think we're going to do it this way." He knew exactly. I didn't have to. S- we're going to go in here. We're going to go out there. And I just, okay. He knew exactly what he wanted. So that's great.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Steve, thank you so much for coming and telling us about your incredible life and career. I have loved every second of it. Super interesting.
1: Thanks for having me, Rob. It's a
0: pleasure. We're going to finish the show. I'm going to play a bit of the, um, a bit of the piece uh, explaining linkage this is from your score for oh. decoding Annie parker all right yeah this 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 just struck me straight away it sounds brilliant it's like so like contemporary classical um you yeah. know that yeah so thank you steve thank you so much
1: thanks for having me rob
0: so much for listening to the jazz podcast we will see you next week